Hey everyone, this is Mary, and before we get into the episode, I just wanted to take a quick minute and remind you that you can pre-order our book, Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl, um, at any bookseller of your choice. You can go to bookshop.org where you'll find our own store with a link to buy it from any independent bookseller. You can also go to our website, dollsofourlivespod.com, with another link to again buy it anywhere you want to buy your favorite books. We so appreciate all of you supporting our show, and we're so excited to share our book with you. We'll also be recording and releasing an audiobook version of the book, and we look forward to sharing that information with you soon. Thanks again, everyone. We really so, so appreciate all of you. Hey, Allison, as a basketball fan, I just need to let you know that the Basketball Hall of Fame just had their induction ceremony for 2023. Oh, I'm assuming Michael Jordan is in there. Wow. Okay. Um, love your fandom jumping out. He, he was actually honored a few years ago. You know, I mean, he's, he's had his moment in the sun. It was controversial if you look up that speech, but you know, I want to let you know, there were many men inducted and one individual woman, Becky Hammond, current coach of the Las Vegas aces. Oh, probably not familiar. As I told you off here, she iconically took out all her starters when I saw her coach this summer and was like, you're embarrassing me and put in the bench people. That was rough, but she was the only female inductee along with the 1976 U.S. Women's Olympic team. So not Julie Albright. That's the that is the like public cry I'm putting out minute one of this episode. Where the hell is the induction of Julie <laughs> into the Basketball Hall of Fame? <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm not in the Basketball Hall of Fame either. Not yet. I mean, you know, it might happen. Who knows? Maybe you're a late bloomer. I think I, Allison, am about as likely an inductee as Julie Albright at this point, sadly. Honestly, it really bummed me out to look up the names of the inductees. I'll probably watch Becky's speech, but it just, I can't even, this whole series is going to be about Title IX in some ways, which we were kind of shocked at how early it comes up. But it is interesting to kind of see, like, I do think in women's basketball, the last year of the college tournament really seemed like the women's tournament was getting like markedly more attention than it has received, but it's still like nowhere near probably what it deserves. I am coming into reading Meet Julie, right? We're starting the Julie Albright series from the early 2000s. I'm coming into this basically knowing Larry Bird, Michael right. Jordan, mm-hmm. that basketballs are orange-ish, and that famous uh, basketball player from TikTok, Sedona Prince. That's kind of like the <laughs> constellation of my knowledge. Wow. And she was just at the ESPYs. So that is the sure. first time I've known the ESPYs were happening. So oh, wow. that's the approximate cluster of my knowledge. Julie, I think, will educate me more on the nuances of basketball. Honestly, like just kind of gut reaction. Like I love a story about equality. Julie's desire to play basketball is at odds with everything I felt in elementary school. But I know Got that it. you feel differently about that. So It's again, that gym day difference coming out between us where like, I couldn't wait for gym class and like sometimes to flex on classmates because I really love basketball. I've always loved it. Love softball. You know, like Julie was called a tomboy 
coded language much and you know we can get into that but i love i've been a lifelong fan i almost bought sneakers this weekend that had orange basketball texture on them i didn't ultimately pull that trigger but if listeners have feedback and not like i need another pair of sneakers but you know i'm interested so i was trying to find like a pair of sneakers that's like a wnba player sneakers who i could support and i haven't really found one that i feel like passionate about yet but in honor of julie So, I mean, I'm a fan. We'll see where this goes. I think, you know, her desire or like the fact that she notices that boys are have different opportunities is something that we'll get into. But before we get into the Julie of it all, and I am really excited about this series, you know, what is lighting you up, Allison, in pop culture? Oh, gosh. So, you know, this summer, basically every thriller author that I love yet again has come out with a book. Lisa Jewell, right? Like I will write or sorry, I will read pretty much anything that she comes out with. Um, Just read a wonderful book by Ashley Audrain called The Whispers. This is her follow up to The Push. Uh, Very surprised on Goodreads. People are not a fan of some aspects of this book. I really liked it. So I'm enjoying those things. I'm more of a reader than like a moviegoer in summer. But what about you? Like, what are you enjoying? Um, let's see. I've also been reading some good books. I'm trying to think of the titles of them right now. I feel like I'm it's I'm I'm drawing a blank. Hold on a second. Uh da, 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 da. I'm reading White House by the Sea right now, which I have mixed feelings about the Kennedys and Cape Cod. But oh. we'll see about that. But that was that was sort of interesting. Um, I read a book called Cantoras by Carolina de Robertis, and it's set in Paraguay, I believe. I'm, if I'm mispronouncing it, my bad. One of the best novels I've read in a really long time. Um, highly recommend. And, you know, I'm always just in pursuit of I'm always reading spy books or mystery books. I read a book called 1989, not about Taylor Swift by Val McDermott, who is a mystery writer, I guess, of great renown. New to me always like discovering a new mystery writer whose stuff I'm into. So had a great queer character as the central character. Again, didn't know this, just randomly got it because I like the cover. I'm deep like that at the public library. I need a good cover for sure. Yeah. And apparently that series is like, she writes another book about with that character at the center where she jumps at a decade each book. So I randomly picked the second book. So I just got 1979. Oh, going to circle back. Um, I think I'll be able to, hopefully I can follow it. Hopefully it's all good, but she's an investigative reporter who ends up like getting involved in a lot of different mysteries. It's set in Scotland. So it's like, if you want to learn about a different place, like that's what I also like about mysteries. Anyway, then this is like sort of embarrassing to admit, but there's a lot of things in the news now about like how Netflix came on or suits came on Netflix in June. And now that's like the most streamed show ever. And unfortunately, I am contributing to that. And I say unfortunately because this is not a good show. Like, just critically speaking, this is not a show that people are going to be like, this is the top 10 TV show that's ever been made. And I fully understand that. I need a show, a procedural that's not violent, that I can watch before bed, not traumatic, kind of fun. And randomly, we just rolled into this show. And it's been it's been an eye-opening revisit of the early 2000s. Suits is a pun. Yes, that's right. Important point. And it has a male genius at the center. So again, don't know how I got here. The suits are the fashion. Like I've seen some articles in Vanity Fair that are like the skin tight cut of men's suits is like very of its time. There's like bro humor, again, very of its time. 
there's a lot of like men uncomfortable with feelings. I, I don't know if that's of its time or is that timeless? I don't know. Again, I'm watching it. And excuse me. And I forgot this is like Meghan Markle's like after deal or no deal. Like this was like her glow up moment. So my knowledge of Suits is very much limited to what other people have said about it. And particularly Prince Harry's characterization of Suits in Spare Oh my God, yes. Fascinating. And I'm suspecting not super accurate because according to him, it's like, you know, this is Shakespeare plus. This is Shakespeare plus network <laughs> yes. TV plus, plus, plus. And, you know, all oh I'll say God. to that is like, you know, he should think that his spouse's acting career is amazing and exceptional he did also note that the cambridges were big fans of suits i do think that's probably one of the more dubious claims in the book but it's really not for me to say like i'm not the daily telegraph i don't know i'm glad that you brought that up because i've been kind of watching suits through the lens of prince harry's like (laughs) rave about it and also like perhaps reading too much into it like the humor that makes me the most uncomfortable is that there's kind of like low-key bullying or like high-key bullying that's presented as like ha 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 like we prank each other or like we just like to you know send each other up but some of it there's like some meanness there and I will like, you know, maybe it feels normal if you're the Cambridges and you watch this or Prince Harry, like that culture feels normal to you. And to me, it's just, it doesn't, it makes me think of a TikTok where someone was like, if you're f- comfortable watching three episodes of Law and Order before bed, maybe you should examine why you find comfort from trauma. And I was like, dear God, like, ah, like I'm not doing that, but no. I am trying to like, so Suits is not that. But it's also just like it is like a time machine, like the references, the flip phones. I'm on a real journey with this. I don't know if anyone else out there is like part of this. And I didn't I don't know why this is happening now. But with the strike, I I think there's a cautionary tale to be had of like we might be left to suits <laughs> if this doesn't re- resolve itself. You know, left with only suits and these historic American girl books, like I do feel that it's right to invoke you know, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle because they are Californians just like Julie Albright. Oh my God. Wow. That's right. That is right. You know, all the greats live in California. Julie, Prince Harry, um, uh, Richard Nixon, Karen Carpenter. We went different directions with that. Don't, she's too pure for this, Allison. Please don't bring her into this. I just, I was driving the other day and I put my Spotify in shuffle, which is always dangerous. And we've only just begun came on. And I like literally was tearing up in my car and I was like, gone too soon. God, she's so talented. Anyway. Yeah, there's much we can get into. Let's not waste any time. Like, you know, I go on a Watergate frenzy like every few years and I just kind of came off one. So Julie is hitting me at an emotional time, like at a deep time for me. There's like Watergate is in the zeitgeist. We still have like middling shows about Watergate being produced. And I hope that, you know, we're about to enter a series that's anything but. So are you emotionally, spiritually prepared to meet Julie? I am. I'm going to give us the publisher's summary, and I'll also just say very quickly with an asterisk, we'll talk about this. This book says 1974. That was found to be a lie in the words of Maury Povich. So wow. remember that. Julie Albright doesn't want to move, even just a few miles away. Moving means leaving her best friend Ivy and her pet rabbit Nutmeg. First of all, it means leaving dad now that her parents are divorced. Then Julie finds out that her new school has a basketball team and life starts looking up until the coach says no girls allowed. 
When Julie decides to fight for her place on the team, some of her new classmates tease her, and now even Ivy won't talk to her. Will Julie ever feel at home in her new school and her new life? Damn. Honestly, like that summary wasn't bad. Like for everything that goes down in this book, like that summary was not bad. But, you know, you didn't mention the author, but I just want to say, like, I have my own feelings about who the true author of this book is. Oh, and? So the name of the author that's listed is... Megan McDonald. Megan McDonald, who also wrote the Judy Moody books. That's all I know about her. And, but I want to say, like, I do think that Ronald Reagan is the true author of this book. Just going to drop that from page one. Like he did found in 1969, he was the governor and he passed the family law act, which included no fault divorces. And I feel like he set in motion this narrative. Like, I don't think that anyone was, although maybe dad was at fault in this divorce. Like I, I was left with a negative feeling about dad and like, we can get into that, but you know, in some ways, like this is the first family that has divorce at the center of it, or like certainly at the beginning of this book, she's literally packed her things to move to her mom's apartment. And I think that that's really important, like an interesting choice for this series and for the decade that we're in, like to see how much they're going to lean into like tropes of this decade. Yeah, the mom is kind of like, as a little preview, the mom is kind of giving Jenny from Forrest Gump at various 100%. times. I I do think it's super useful because we've just come off of multiple series that are in the Be Forever format and there are Mm -hmm. Be Forever books. We are choosing to read the classic Julie six book arc. And for those who kind of like follow along, like we did the first characters that we knew and then went back in chronological order, not by order of release date. Julie is older than many of the recent characters that we've done for a year plus, and her mm. closest contemporary in release date is Kaya, which we did over two years ago. So mm. Kaya comes out in 2002 on the heels of Kit and Josefina. When this character comes out, it is in the fall of 2007, and this is after a number of years of them releasing best friends. So Emily Bennett being her own character, Elizabeth Cole being her own character, Nellie O'Malley being her own. And mm. this was kind of at a point where people were wondering what American Girl was going to do. Like, were they going to continue doing historical? Mm. Were they going to focus on other kinds of characters? Ruthie gets released right after Julie and then Rebecca Rubin. Uh, is hmm. 2009. So there is like a decent clip. I think a lot of people characterize it as like Pleasant Company or Mattel. Like in these Mattel early like decade plus, there's like constant characters coming out. A number of them are friends, but Julie is 2007. So that's kind of where she that's lands in all of this. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, like the juxtaposition you point us to of like Kaya and then Julie, like thinking about when we covered Kaya. So much of her books were dislocated from a sense of a nation state because there was none. And there was like a completely different sense of belonging or being in those books. And I think Julie as like a next step from that is really interesting to like take that same consciousness of like questioning the nation state or like not something that's coming in purely patriotic, like to navigate the 70s is also a really interesting choice. Julie was very much pushed as a way to 
not Mm -hmm. create bridges between like multi-generation gaps, but for parents and children to have conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because you and I initially had read Julie more as a bridge between grandparents and grandchildren, but article, which I think would be true now, but articles I was reading about this were pointing to the fact that, you know, people who had their coming of age in the 1970s, like would have children, right? Like that would be of interest. Mm. And there's about like just over a 30 year gap between the events of Julie's books and the release of her character, which I hate to say is the equivalent of close to being Don't the late it. 1990s. Uh, Nikki Don't and say Isabel. it. So that's not that far off either. So that really is like intended to be a specific kind of bridge. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because it's already been a bridge between my mom and I, which is interesting because, you know, Molly was a bridge with my grandmother and and whatever. And Julie is like definitely like my mom's era. Like my mom was older than Julie at that point. But the fact that like the material culture of like sort of the hippie or like 70s era aesthetic and she has at one point. So like we meet her with her best friend, Ivy. She's about to move with her mom and sister to her an apartment above her mom's store, which we will get into. And the mom's store recycles or upcycles jeans into higher end bags and like makes beaded jewelry and like kind of takes very like feels like current now, but like takes materials and upcycles them into clothes and jewelry. And the mom is like trying to get them to on board with this. And she's like, Julie, we could make like a rug in the shape of a foot. Like we could do drapes. We could do all this stuff. And when they kind of show her outfits, like on the cover of the book and things like that is stuff that I have seen photos of my mom Hmm. wearing like that kind of fashion. And there's like this story in my mom's life that when she was 16 around this time, she wanted or a little bit, younger. She really wanted for her. The only thing she wanted for her birthday was like this really huge butterfly ring and a straw hat that also had butterflies on it It was like very kind of like seventies aesthetic. So in a a nice way, like even before I talked to my mom about it, it was like, oh, this is, this might've been like familiar material culture to her. Yeah. This article I found says one goal in creating Julie's character was to spark dialogue between girls and their parents, many of whom were raised in this decade. This is an opportunity for girls to read about how their parents grew up. It shows them what coming of age was for them. Um, and mm. for me, like my mom was having children like around the time, you know, so like this is more like depends on kind of how your your family is structured. But I was reflecting like that we had kind of read Julie as, as having maybe a different kind of background it's also striking that she's West Coast, right? That we have two characters yeah. who are West Coast in a row. We have Kaya in this character. And then they go back to the East Coast for Rebecca to kind of delve into like life on the Lower East Side. I do appreciate that we're back in a six book character arc because I know that we're just starting to get to know Julie. Yeah, I feel safe in the six character arc and I'm into that. We know we learn in this book that she's a Taurus. Yes. Which is interesting. And that she reads her horoscope in the newspaper every day. And she's the kind of person who isn't using it to predict her future. But sort of in retrospect, she's kind of like, oh, well, maybe that's what that meant. Yeah, we get the sense that Julie's life is going through a lot of upheaval. And in classic kind of American girl style, there's a just slightly older, older sister who's like very wise and knowing. 
And I'm sure we'll like, you know, get some humble pie at some point. But older sister Tracy is kind of already a little bit more politically sharp. She's kind of highly critical of the situation. And Tracy is very upset in an outward way about the fact that she has to split time between mom and dad. It's like pretty remarkable that they choose to set this up where dad, who's never home, keeps the house, right? He's a pilot. Yes. And mom moves into an apartment above the store. That was fascinating to me that that's the choice that they made. And I don't understand like how they're justifying that because that never would have happened. I think that we're going to learn more about mom. And I think some of the characters that we've encountered through American Girl, they're deeply rooted, right? Like they have parents and grandparents and they've been in an area a while. I think sometimes the West Coast, they kind of use that as a past. Like, you know, we have no idea where these people are from, right? Like they've just almost as if they've just appeared, which is not true. Um We know that dad's life is very unpredictable and that mom is probably a little bit more politically radical. What's interesting is there's not a ton of like super elaborate world building yet. Like we know that she has a best friend and we know that they're leaning hard into the best friend line around this time. The person who gets equal billing with Ivy is TJ, the annoying neighbor and coach Manley. Like coach Manley basically you know, like shout out to Miss Manderley, who's one of our favorite characters from Felicity of all time. Basically, it was like, we need a man who behaves badly. We will give him the name of Manly. Yeah, they thought deep on that one. And he's described as having a fat neck. And I was like, you know what, or a thick neck. And I was like, guys, we kind of need to move away from like mapping negative personality traits onto depictions of people's bodies like the body shaming that goes on with that was not cool but it's like he feels like a caricature to me he's the least developed character in this book because he basically exists to pose almost cartoonish level opposition to julie who's newly arrived at this school because she's moved um there's like kind of a hint that she liked basketball but we don't really appreciate how much she liked it until she arrives at this school and then it's like TJ like basically is in the hallway or she like sees him playing hoops and like challenges him or like returns the ball and scores on him. And he's like, yeah, I'm trying out for the team. And and she's, there's a sign of she, and that's what launches this whole, like her trying to get on the boys basketball team. And, but the coach like is sort of unhinged in his opposition to her joining the team. He's very upset. And, you know, I read some reviews that pointed out that, Julie seems hyper aware of Title IX for her age, but like she is also just like very active and interested. And so she is aware of recent very high level changes that she should have opportunities to be able to play sports. The adults in this book very much seem to be in their own world. And I don't know if that's an attempt to show like these are baby boomers who are kind of still going through it. And like, this is the children they raised. Like that feels like a latent argument in this book that mom and dad are themselves baby boomers, right? Right. They have different kinds of careers. They are ultimately incompatible. And they have Tracy, who's very sure of herself, and Julie, who's kind of figuring herself out. And I feel like we're at this crossroads of like, is the future hippie mom or like conservative dad? And it's like, surprise, it's both. 
Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I also think that something that's a little bit odd about the presentation of, I think like what we're trying to, what they're trying to get us to understand is that like Julie is in crisis because her family is like changing mm-hmm. and it's redefining itself. And she doesn't recognize her mom anymore because she says there's this scene with Tracy where she's like, mom is always at her store now. And on page 22, we used to come home and she'd have cupcakes with gooey icing and help with our book reports and stuff. So there's like this idyllic vision of mom as like a 50s housewife. And now mom is running a store called Glad Rags, named after a Rod Stewart lyric question mark suggested by Tracy. And then Tracy has to kind of own this moment by stepping in as like eldest daughter syndrome, like here I am to fix this and takes her to a bakery to teach her state capitals. And it's kind of like, okay, Julie is navigating the fact that her mom wants her own life and her own fulfillment through her professional life. But my question is like, did that just happen like a month before we meet them? Like mom surely has been kind of changing her priorities But Julie seems to just be like dealing, sitting with this change or realizing it with the move. This seemed like a book in some ways where I felt like I started on the wrong chapter. Like I felt like this was Mm. a story that had been in progress and I needed to catch up. And part of that is we're told right away that Ivy and Julie are extremely close and that their friendship is being, as you say, you know, disrupted and changed by Julie's move. They are neighbors where Julie lives with her father, but in moving with her mother, they are going to be blocks apart, which also necessitates a school change. And all of this feels very abrupt. I wonder if we had started in like June or July of 1975 and like we kind of went through like the lead up to the move. We start with the move. We start with this family kind of relocating and we learn pretty quickly that like Tracy is adamant about not spending time with dad. Like Tracy wants to reclaim her weekends and her time off. Um, she says to Julie, I'm not going. And she's wearing Miss Piggy PJs, which I love. I'm staying here. Icon. I have tennis practice anyway. And Julie, you know, parentification moment. She's like, what about dad? Like she's trying to, you know, stick up for this. Dad is honking. There's kind of a disaster. Um, these two are sort of fascinating because dad picks her up and immediately he kind of puts her with her friend Ivy and he's like, we'll just have a day out on the town. But before that, like there's a scene where, so Tracy's like, we don't hear what the exchange is, but she's like, tell dad whatever you want. She's like, what am I supposed to tell dad? Like that you're not coming. And she's like, tell him whatever you want. I don't care. Honestly, real Miss Piggy energy. Yeah. And I respect it. And when dad gets back in the car, Julie's like, oh, like, sorry, dad, or like basically starts like consoling him. And it's sort of like the emotional caretaking was not moving in the direction it should have been, which is like dad should not be like basically creating a situation where Julie is comforting him. Yeah. Also, why is she named Julie if his favorite song is Julia? I mean, thank you. That's in my notes. As a Beatles fan, I was like also very strange to name her daughter after a song that John Lennon wrote about his mom and her abandonment of him. It's foreshadowing. It is foreshadowing. Pilot's honor. Hashtag pilot's honor. Um, Basically the same visit. He throws them with Ivy. This is like classic like dad babysitting your own child and it's not babysitting if it's your kid. But he's like, I'm taking them to a like an outing. We're on a trolley car. It's all happening. And then like she brings up career day and we have not gotten into her school life, but she is taught by an icon named Ms. Period Ms. Hunter. 
do not call her miss. Do not call her missus. She is showing up as a single woman or professional. And I love that she gives the students a little mini lecture, like, no, I am Ms. period. And she feels as though it's not anyone's business about her marital status, which I think is like the theme for this whole book. Julie yep. questions why dad seems to look different. We kind of get the sense that dad is on like a new like self-care regime as is the yep. mother. And he's like, don't ask me about that. Like, I do think the adults in this book are going to be very funny. Dad has decided that he's sort of halfway supportive of everyone in this family. He's like, well, if Tracy can't come, that's okay. That's I'm, cool. I'm taking my space from mom. He isn't discouraging of Julie, but he's certainly not her biggest cheerleader when he says, boys can be super competitive and they like to roughhouse. Did you ever think they may not be too happy about having a girl on their team? Dad. Dad, what are you doing, Dad? And then later, that same page, I think she says, um, once Julie saw the exclamation point creases between Dad's eyebrows, she knew it was time to drop the subject. And it's like, this is that tells me that there have been (laughs) other moments where Julie's like, Dad, what if I did X? And he was like, I don't know. Like, what about boys might being there? Like, I don't know. Like, Dad is the no parent and Mom is the yes parent, for better or worse. And dad's like immediate questioning. He's the person who taught her to play basketball. Like this is like such a huge metaphor. It's like the man in your life who taught you, who gave you basketball is like, no, I don't think you should play with other boys. He's also trying to navigate, right? Like the changes, like he's gotten her a token from one of his recent trips to Chicago. He has something for the sister. Finally, we're back. We're back in the world where we have beautiful illustrations. And I am very grateful for that. Um, Shout out to Robert Hunt. Better known for making the DreamWorks logo, but best known wow. in American Girl World for doing the Julie and Rebecca books. So that gives me Beautiful hope. illustrations. Beautiful illustrations. Dad is kind of doing like a mini salute to Julie who's in bed. Honestly, that scene was so harrowing because you knew in that moment, like the foreshadowing was like hitting you in the head like a basketball where she's like, Dad, career day, like you going to be there? And he's like, pilot's on her. I'm going to be there. And he like bought Tracy a, a tennis visor because Tracy is to describe to use Julie's language. My sister is a hair freak and a tennis freak. Yeah. So she's big into Billie Jean King, um, et cetera, Chris Everett. So dad's trying to buy his way back into Tracy and Julie's lives. And or like, you know, that's part of what's happening here. And he's like, don't worry, girl, I'll be there at career day. He will not be there. And he has a tough act know. to follow, which is a baker. Who brings, you know, donut knowledge, donut pleasure. He's not there. Like, dad, do not come. Like, donut come. Like, he's not there. So mom has to fill in. And I think that this was kind of a, like, not quite heavy-handed way to show that Julie is having to get used to thinking of her mother as a person with a career. And so this is like a twofold shock to her. One, because dad made a promise and dad did not follow through on Pilot's Honor. And two, because like now it's her mother coming to talk about a career. And I think there's some kind of like slight acknowledgement of that that's embarrassing to her. 
I think there's an acknowledgement of that. And when she joined the class, the students were like, there's a, a group of mean girls known as the water fountain girls. And they were talking about her as like having divorced parents being like something that they would gossip about and that her mom works. So like, we're supposed to understand that like both of these things are like supposed to be embarrassing. And yet career day shows like a moment of mom shining where it's like mom completely upends all of that. And is like, nope, look at me. Like, look what I'm doing. Like, I'm really cool. And she brings apple seed bracelets, question mark, for everyone. And I need eyes on one of these bracelets, Allison. I don't think it would go over that well if you brought this to a Taylor Swift concert. Like, if you got tickets for round two okay. or Europe and you brought that out. I do love that they're making friendship bracelets. The toe, or sorry, foot rug scares me. Like, I'm happy for yeah. mom, but I don't understand her. I, okay, and I couldn't really get eyes on, like, was this an actual trend in 1974-75? Like, I think, like, <laughs> you know, thick rugs, like, novelty rugs, like, in the same way that on TikTok you see a lot of people making, like, the push needle, like, embroidery rugs. I'm like, okay, so is that what that was? Like, what, like was there a, like, national rug foot fetish? Like, what what was going on? But that's presented as, like, well, obviously, like, everyone wants the foot rug. So, Speaking of things that don't hold up very well, I, you know, the call went out. Rod Stewart is the inspiration for this store. And I think, all right, so I'll look up handbags and glad rags. Immediately learned that glad rags is now a company that makes um, female sanitary underwear. Awesome. Wow. Like, cool. Or like, wow, you know, a certain kind of menstrual undergarment for everyone. Okay. Awesome. So like, that's what that word refers to now historically it referred to other kinds of attire so i figure like what is this song about these are the lyrics ever seen a blind man cross the road trying to make the other side ever seen a young girl growing old trying to make herself a bride i'm not sure this song has like really held up but here's what this book is about or sorry, this song, when they have finally stripped you of the handbags and the glad rags that your granddad had to sweat so you could buy. I don't know that I like your tone, Rod. And also like that use of glad rags suggests that it's store-bought finery. And like literally mom's whole deal is that she's taking your old jeans and turning it into something that like you can't like possibly imagine. Yeah, so... Mom seems to be upending what is happening in that song. And Rod, maybe I just don't understand you. I assume he's on the Patreon. Like, Does anyone assume, does anyone understand Rod Stewart? I mean, he did pioneer like the elder turn to standards songbook album sure. release practice. Like I'll give him that. But yeah, we assume Rod, he's a Duncan Shiro. So if you're listening, just get in the DMs, tell us what's up. And in my mind, mom is like a Tina Knowles. Like she is taking like Tina Knowles early aughts jean work. If you've not seen her upcycling and her early styling of Destiny's Child, like check it out. To me, I'm like, she's bedazzling. Like she is taking things from like a five to a 10. And like that to me is not of Rod Stewart or Glad Rags as you just described it. It makes me question everything I think I know about mom because I think mom has a good like sense of the world. Mm -hmm. These were her other options for songs to go to for inspiration in 1975. Okay. Shining Star by Earth, Wind & Fire, Jive Talkin' by the Bee Gees, Bohemian mm. Rhapsody, Walk This Way. Like, these are just a few of the hits of that wow. time. Um, Bowie comes out with Fame, 
love will keep us together. Okay, that kind of was like too close to home for her. I understand. Um, Tough. Lady Marmalade comes out like cats in the cradle. Honestly, that shout out to dad. nineteen seventy five is just an absolutely like fantastic moment for all different like the Bay City Rollers are coming out with music, and Mom is like, "But what about Rod Stewart?" Oh my God! Well, I mean, Tracy picked it, so this is on Tracy. But Mom allowed that. Like, Mom, you probably own your own records. Like, dig into your own collection. Turn on the radio. Like, Tracy doesn't need. Like maybe Tracy needed this win. But <laughs> yeah. Like it's not. I a don't win. understand. It's like your kids probably have a lot of ideas, and like some of them go on the fridge, some of them go in the trash, some <laughs> of them live in your heart. But like not all of them need to be the name of your store. I guess that's where I'm coming from. I think perhaps they didn't want to polarize us too early towards like disco or like other like rock and roll music types. So they were like, okay, yeah. we'll go with Rod Stewart. And maybe that, you know, Megan McDonald's has like a very specific visceral memory. I'm not trying to knock Rod Stewart. I just, I listened to that song. I got partway through and I was like, I don't understand the Albright family. Like kids had questions on career day. I have questions now. I also have questions now. And I also think the periodization of the book kept throwing me, to be honest, because so we're in 1975. The cover of this book says 1974. Correct. But it's, it's a lie. Not. And like I said, I'm really disappointed because a few months prior to the start of this book, if we were in 1974, Patty Hearst was robbing a bank in San Francisco. So like, where is where is Julie wearing a beret? Like, does she have a stance? Like, she, what does she no. think Patty knew? She's too blonde. They couldn't go there. They needed... This they is like come back from that. No, this is the description of Julie's, uh, like, accoutrement. A fun tie-dyed bag, a braided headband, purple frame sunglasses, a shiny gold medal Julie necklace, very Carrie Bradshaw, a petition for Julie to join the boys' basketball team, wooden pencil for people to sign. You should not sign in pencil, but... A clipboard to hold the petition with Daisy and smiley face stickers. What's interesting to me about this list is we have so many different flashpoints in our media today about access to sports and equity for children as well as for adults. And the way that Title IX is talked about in this book, it feels like a fun suggestion that a child right. would like pick up on akin to like them learning they could have a lemonade stand. Yeah. And I agree with the review you cited where it's like, it is a bit of a, a reach to suggest that Julie read this herself in the newspaper. And in fact, like, it's not even like a parent who's saying to her, Julie, did you see this article in the paper? Here, look, you know, there's this law and it actually says like, if your t- school can't afford to have a team for girls, like they have to let you on the boys team. She has that own light bulb and is literally like going through her mom's old papers that she's using as like art stuff in her store and is like, no, like, let me clip this. I need this as evidence. It is sort of like, how do you show an awareness in a kid's book of a kid knowing legislation that would impact their lives? And like, we're recording this in the week that in Montana, kids led a successful um, lawsuit against the government for climate change, um, violating climate change laws. Um, so it's like, we know this happens, but like this storyline itself is a bit clunky. And like you're saying, it's sort of like up to the, it's presented like the coach can legitimately say, no, you're not on the team. She also just turned nine. She yeah. just turned nine. So her birthday is May 1, 1966. This is very, very early September going into that. 
1975. So she just turned nine years old. I agree that children can and do often pull off amazing feats in understanding their rights. I think because we're not super clear about the relationship between her and Tracy, and Tracy is very invested in the career of Billie Jean King and Mm -hmm. is very interested in sport. I think the way that I ultimately read this, it was less that Julie was inspired by the case she reads about in the newspaper and more that her sister has a kind of growing vocalization of like audacity that she is picking up on. Like, well, if mom can get divorced, if this teacher can go by Ms., if this person can do this, like then I can take a stand as well and I can petition to get people to care This also gets her to kind of dabble in, like, veterans advocacy. Yes. And before we get into that, I just want to say, like, it sort of sounds like, as you described that list, that she is sort of, like, on her own course of, like, what they would call consciousness raising. Like, she's surrounded by all these people who are advocating for themselves in ways where, like, the personal feels political. And, like, to me, the biggest takeaway of this book is, like, it's about feminism, but it refuses to use that word. There is no sense of kind of like where mom really is politically. And we learn that Gerald Ford is president and it's kind of through a silly. It's like we're getting onto the metric system and Julie starts to panic, which like 100 percent same. Same. Honestly, same. And that moment where the teacher's like, guys, the president's signing the metric law. And I'm like, (laughs) oh, my God, like straight up panic, like. Please don't don't invoke that. Cut to Julie trying to use her foot rug as like a unit of measurement. Like Julie (laughs) is not prepared. None of us would have been prepared. I think she's like an interesting little girl who is going through a lot of changes. And one of the kind of things that I liked about this book a lot was her relationship with Ivy and the way that Ivy kind of tempers her on some things, but also knows when to just like go along to get along. And that Ivy has her own ambitions that are sort of parallel track. Like she wants to be big in gymnastics and that doesn't threaten or destabilize anything because it's seen as a feminine pursuit. I'm I'm not saying that it is exclusively, but like the way that that's treated as a good thing for her is contrasted with Julie's love of basketball. Well, and to me, like the thing that I could sort of relate to growing up playing sports was that I think basketball figures so prominently for her all of a sudden, it seems as she gets to the school because she feels so out of place. And I think like, so the rest of her life feels so chaotic and basketball is a thing that like, I think she feels very good about herself doing. Like she tells the principal at one point, like I can play, I can dribble like the Harlem Globetrotter, which is like, okay, like weird reference, but fine. And I think it's like she feels it's a place where she feels safe and confident. And I think sports is that for a lot of kids. I know not for you. Um, So like not saying all kids, but I think for Ivy, it's like gymnastics do that for her. Like it makes her feel like herself. So if you're being told like you don't have an outlet for a thing that makes you feel like you, you know, I'm sure that would be upsetting. And I think being around Tracy, who calls her gym teacher a male chauvinist pig echoing Billie Jean King. Um, and the battle of the sexes, like, I think that would, I guess, like raise her consciousness. But as you're pointing us to a moment ago, the thing that helps her decide how to deal with this practically is her exposure to a Vietnam vet. You also get all of these little signs that like, there are like moments of disobedience happening more and more in the school and that people aren't really sure how to deal with it. Like, I think bizarrely, this is one of the books that has brought up like disciplining children the most. 
right? Like this kind of constant obsession with the demerits and like all of those discussions. And it seems like Julie has the law on her side, but like in a very like weird, like Nixon land moment, it's like, but we're going to nab you on like minor crimes that don't matter. Yeah. I mean, this whole plot line was very strange to me. Like I was sort of bit, I was sort of nervous starting the book because I'm like, oh God, is there going to be a Vietnam vet here? And is it going to be weird? Or like, is it, or is it not going to be handled well? And I do think, you know, he's a compassionate person in her life, like in a plot that makes like very little sense or just seems like, like I said, the gym teacher feels like a caricature. It feels like the opposition to her doing this feels so over the top that I'm sure if we read oral histories of women trying to do this at the same time, it would read similarly, but I think to me, it just read kind of crazy. But the fact that the Vietnam vet, ultimately the card he pulls from his deck to motivate her at her lowest moment is Richard Nixon. Yeah. Like, what do you make of that scene? So if you read along, right, this is in a chapter called Let Girls Play Too. So we have Ivy and Julie and they are encountering Hank. And I had to read this scene a few times because I wasn't sure how to process it. Ivy wants to walk away from Hank. Ivy doesn't want to have any interaction with him to a point where she says, like, let's cross the street. Right. And the Vietnam War has just ended. And Julie says the market's right there. Ivy replies, I know, but I don't think we should walk past that guy. He's weird. He looks like a troll with all that orange hair. Oh, that's just Hank. He's a friend of my mom's. I say hi to him all the time. And then she explains, Hank's not a stranger. He's a Vietnam vet. She says it's really hard when you've seen so many terrible, horrible things. Some people just can't get over it. And Ivy is very skeptical. What I found so bizarre about this little section Literally, by the end of the Felicity books, they've slightly humanized Jiggy Nye, who's like an actual villain. Like, he's actually committed crimes of violence against animals. To not offer a sketch or, like, a humanizing moment and to leave you with the visualization of a doodle of a troll doll, I thought was so exceptionally strange. Yeah, inoffensive. Like, it's sort of this thing where I think sometimes books are trying to illustrate a character saying something out of touch. And in their commitment to it, the without any um, internal questioning or like criticism that now Julie does speak back to that in the next beat. But to me, like including that illustration, and also the language around which he's introduced in the book, kind of like is at odds with what they ultimately want you to think about him, which is that he's a caring human being. Like he's introduced on page nine and he's described as a curious looking man. He had a bushy red beard um, and wiry red hair and was wearing a pit, a patched green army jacket and a baseball cap. So that's how we know he's a veteran. He also says he's going to the vet center or doing a, a, a fundraiser. He has a meeting for it and then a fundraiser later, but it's like, All of this seems to marginalize him, even as the book's trying to upend, like, thinking or, like, the othering of veterans or, like, really anyone, I guess. I guess why can't we have both, right? Like, I think you're totally right that it's a brilliant kind of stroke for Julie to say he's not a stranger. He's a person in our life that we care about. And my mother has explained, no, but it's the mom. Mom has explained that they should treat veterans with respect and courtesy. And Ivy is not getting that message, so she's not sure. Why not put, you know, what in this these series they often do so well, that humanizing sketch, right, of them then being eye level 
and talking to Hank, we also learn that like he's very politically active and he still has the time to check in on how the state capitals test went, which to my knowledge, dad never dropped in on. So Do you know where dad is? Maybe Alaska. He's not here. No, he's I don't know. not here. He's like, hey, how's Lincoln? Like, how did that test he's go? He's like, oh my Hartford God. He's with so, heart. He is so compassionate. And he also inspires her activism because he's collecting signatures to keep the vet center open. And she's like, light bulb, I should do a petition to get myself on the boys basketball team, which to Ivy is like the worst sleepover activity of all time. And like, don't blame her. She's like, what the hell? I thought we were hanging out. (laughs) And she ends up like going home because she'd come to visit Julie. But like, as you say, after that, even if she's, she gets really disgruntled, people in the public aren't signing, people at school sign, she hands the petition in And the gym teacher, like, throws it in the trash. Like, again, this guy is cartoonishly, like, a villain in this book. But then, as you're saying, after that, TJ helps her pick it out of the trash after Hank checks in on her plate and they play basketball together. And he's like, hey, don't get discouraged. And then brings out what, to me, was the most stunning quote in this book. Of anyone in human history, this man could quote, presumably a Vietnam vet, he brings out... Richard Nixon. Yeah. And says, um, I'm sure I sure wasn't his biggest fan, but I remember he once said a man isn't finished when he's defeated. He's finished when he quits with that. Hank turned and headed up the street. What's insane about this point one is that he drops a Nixon quote and then is like, I need no further explanation. (laughs) I'm leaving. No words just turns and leaves. But like, what do you make of this moment of this man who's presumably a Vietnam vet? Quoting Nixon. I think part of what you're supposed to take from this book is kind of like the fascinating elements of like being that generation raised by boomers, right? Like Julie is being raised Mm -hmm. by the boomer generation and she is like for sure a latchkey kid and that her assemblage of political leanings is coming from like, I'm going to assume Republican and not just rhino dad, right? left-leaning mom who's definitely going to consciousness raisings instead of making cupcakes for the kids which is not a judgment but just is a fact yes local vietnam vet slash activist slash you know like radicalized person you pointed out right like that that is a really interesting choice also this being billed as a 1974 book it's shocking that within three years of Nixon's complete disgrace, Hank is like, you know, who had some good points. He's like, you know what? You got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Nixon had to do some things, but, you know. And Ivy is very unsure, which is where I think she's in, in a notable and interesting character. She's unsure about any of this. Like, she's been promised a sleepover and friendship bracelets, and she doesn't get to see Julie very much. And she's like, we need to make a bracelet for every single day of the week. Like, she's about the ritual and gift-giving of keeping the friendship together. Julie is already on her own-ish with her own agenda of getting to play basketball without Ivy. And this leads to a rift, not just in the sleepover, but, like, a rift in the friendship that Ivy then solves with creating a petition of her own. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. To me, I was like, your love language is gift giving, both receiving and giving and crafting. <laughs> it seemingly is like your chief means of communication. Not said with criticism. I understand. No. And we have this moment. I don't think my parents would like me doing this, Ivy said. 
And Julie basically clocks that her dad probably wouldn't like her doing it either. But then the subtext is like, but they're divorced, so it doesn't matter. Like, dad isn't here to check in on all of this. You yeah. you bring up a really great point that like the way that Julie and Ivy, right, like they have their strategy with the petition. The petition gets like literally ditched and thrown into the trash. This did make me really curious, like what very young children nationwide would have understood in the 1970s about their world changing. Like you can mm. see, I could see honestly a bit more realistically, a lot of high schoolers, like young female, you know, persons like her older sister, Tracy, getting really excited about Title IX. But it is surprising that in elementary school, like she's ready. Yeah. I mean, is that guy, are we supposed to read this as like, this is what it is to be a younger sibling and you're sort of like exposed to things sooner because your older siblings are interested and you want to be like them or has like the events at home kind of grown her up a little bit or like, I don't, you know, I don't really know what to make of this, but I don't want to speak broadly about nine-year-old people, but I know some are very motivated, but is this something that you think they would have read and been like, yeah, this sounds like plausible. I think where this comes out of is like, we've said this about Rebecca books as well. Rebecca being right on the other side of Barack Obama's election. Mm -hmm. I think like this coming at the tail end of like George Bush's America, it was sort of like a new day is possible. And to get inspiration, nine-year-olds should look to the 1970s. Like we should yeah. skip Reaganomics. We should skip like George Bush senior. We should skip the other George Bush. We're certainly not going to look to the Clintons. Like maybe mom gets entangled with a Clinton-esque figure at some point, but basically like, we're not going to go there at all. We're going to go back to 1975, back to Rod Stewart. And it, there were like vibes to me of like, this was a simpler time when like feminism was like using Ms. And I'm not dismissing like the significance of that, but Right. Your general account that this is about like a specific random cluster of actions and not about a politics or a political leaning is a really interesting way to see the 70s through the prism of the early 2000s. Yes. And also like sort of the focus on the individual as well, yeah. like in change being something that's purely motivated by something that she wants for herself. She's not thinking about other girls in the school yet. I mean, maybe that's where we're going, but she's really motivated by like, I want this thing. They're saying I can't have it. What do I do to get this thing to happen? And, you know, like you're saying, it's a, it's a small F feminism and it's very, it does feel very second wave. And, you know, I guess we'll just have to see where this goes, but I also think it's interesting that Nick, the Nixon we're getting here. And again, this is from the distance of 2007 is sort of like post um, like, reassessment of Nixon, like as someone who, for whom we might find positive or some kind of redeeming things to say. And I think that that's absurd in 1975. I mean, the quote that is included in the book was not even public until that year. It was included in a book by William Sapphire called Before the Fall. He was a speechwriter of Nixon. He writes about working in the Nixon White House before Watergate. So it's like quoting Nixon in like 1969 or like that era, 1970, early 70s. And I was looking for the exact date of the quote and couldn't find it, but I'm speculating. But like, so it's 
it's just sort of strange that it's like, why are we interested in redeeming Richard Nixon in a book set in the 70s? Well, why is Hank interested in that? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, who is who is driving Hank? Like, this is so weird. Like, veterans were not like pro Nixon. That is not what happened. No. And to your point, like, there's sort of the strangeness of Hank. And then there's like Manly, who's so one dimensional. Oh I read God. it. Doesn't change a thing. Sports are for boys, not girls. Like, he like seems like he jumped right out of Berenstein Bears, No <laughs> Girls Allowed, where I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, you're straight out of central casting. Like, I just it's bizarre. It's like, I don't know. That just read like his whole character was like, you are not a real person. Julie is afraid of getting a hall pass, even though she's like in the right by doing the petition. I'm not sure about like what that petition would have actually accomplished. Sadly, we get a manly visual and not a Hank visual. She's told to go back to class. I loved this moment. I'm so mad I could scream, Julie told TJ as soon as the final bell rang. All my hard work and he just crunched up my petition like it was nothing but an old hamburger wrapper. What a moment. And that's where I'm like, I am with Julie because this is a person who's not afraid to own her anger. And I think that's also like, if you're thinking about nine-year-olds reading this, I actually like those moments in the book where she's like, I'm really mad and like naming it. Yeah. And and what did you make of, you know, mom is proud. Like they kind of have a check-in after school. What did you make of Ivy Lang's petition to be Julie's friend again? Um, Kind of over the top, but, you know, <laughs> I guess good. I mean, it, how much, like, I wanted to know how much those printing, that printing costs, because it's like a poster that she sends with, like, she has signed her own petition 150 times, which is the number that Julie arbitrarily decided she needed on her petition to be Julie's friend again. In a box. In a box. I'm like, what? Who, like, what is the budget on this grand gesture? I don't know what the budget is of like the Jack London school, which is like, we'll have to talk about him some <sighs> other time, but she's part of Damn. the Jaguars now. Um, a visual that I really liked and something I saw in the reviews, I think people were hoping that from the jump, San Francisco would be a character in the way that New York is a character. And, and maybe that will come in subsequent books. I actually really loved like the visual of her walking home. And the the book says, Julie took a shortcut and realized for the first time that she knew the route by heart. Like she's becoming accustomed. Mm. And we kind of see her um, like looking by and then her sort of reverie is interrupted. She couldn't even call dad tonight. Nobody would answer the phone at his house. And she didn't even know where he was flying this week. Like basically she's trying to like get amped by telling people. And it ends with her realizing that that mom is at work. Yeah. Interesting end. She says, that's how it was now, but she wasn't going to let it spoil her good mood. And then she goes by glad rags. Mom would be there, bracelets jangling as she arranged items on a shelf or waited on a customer. Tracy would be home any minute. In the living room, the prism hanging in the front window would just be catching the last light of day, splashing rainbows all around the room. And then she runs the last part home. Girl, why are we running? No one is home. She's vibing. Like, she's like, she is on a high. Like, she's on an adrenaline high. Like, I mean, I read that ending as, like, she is still uncomfortable with the fact that mom is different than she remembers. Or, like, yeah. she's still getting used to new mom. But I think there's some acknowledgement or understanding that, like, 
Mom's professional life has no bearing on how present in the important ways mom is in her life. Like mom does a check in with her, like she's aware of like the coach or Miss Man, Miss Man, whatever, Mr. Manly. Manly. And she's like aware of like the major plot points in Julie's life where basically she's like dad's 30,000 feet high, but also like who cares because he's not like even when he's there, he's like not present. He's like, good job, champ. I mean, this is also classic American girl where dads are all over the map. I'm trying to think right now, like best dads in the series that we've had. I'm calling Uncle Guard a dad figure. I'm going to give him his due. Yeah, I'll give you that. I would say Addie's dad is like a remarkably good character. Caroline's dad. I mean, when he's He's like not being captured. Yeah. Question mark. Um, Rebecca's dad. dad. Rebecca, I mean, is he really a good influence? Felicity's dad. I'm not sure. Um, I'm struggling. Kirsten's dad. No, lets them keep the someone's dad. Kirsten's dad. He's a no. Not not a winner in my book. Um, Molly's dad is MIA. I don't think he. He's at war. Counts. He's at war. We'll allow for that. I. Um, You know, I like Julie. Like, I don't. I think I relate to Ivy a little bit more, minus like the gymnastics. Like, I kind of understand her. Um, Also, I love this. They like when they decided to rehit the historicals, they were like the out of pocket bios come back as well. Megan McDonald grew up in a house full of books and sisters. She has loved to write since she was 10. The story was about a pencil sharpener. This was her first published story. Megan vividly remembers growing up in the 70s, making apple seed bracelets and learning the metric system. What? I'm sorry, but did, was there a moment in the sun? Like, I actually had to look up this metric system act because, like, spoiler alert, I'm not an expert on that. But I'm reading about the metric conversion act, and it's like, technically, it's still on the books, but we've never actually done it. I would, and I'm like, did anybody actually do this? Megan, I would Just pay, Megan. I would pay, like, to see, like, the stories that got tossed out of this, and then Megan was like, like, what's the source? She's like, my life. When, Me. When, so they don't call it a peek into the past. They call it looking back America in the 70s. I was concerned that I got whiplash reading this. They were like, oh, do you want two pages on Title IX stories followed by Billy Me Jean King, followed by ads? We're going to show Sally Ride in space. We're going to talk about Nixon, about using like Ms versus Mrs. And then the final thing, in the late 60s and early 70s, millions of people protested America's presence in Vietnam. Like, we overstayed a party. It was the first time so many Americans had publicly opposed their government. And um, I was like, was it? the Ellisons would like a word. Um, yeah, no kidding. This was an iconic ending to a peek into the past. By the early 70s, a majority of people disapproved of America's involvement in Vietnam. Many had lost trust and confidence in their government. It sometimes seemed as if all the time-honored American ideals were turned upside down. Do you think she just watched Forrest Gump? She was like, this is what I got from that. I think they chose to go hard into Title IX because I think they assumed that that would be like a relatively uncontroversial entry point into activism of this period. Yes, I think you're right. Although, like, they could not have predicted that with, like, the protests of trans girls participating in sports that, like, if we're reading this now, like, there is 
there's this other whole like Title IX lens. Also, like just for like female identifying people generally, like Title IX is still not like a victory lap for like a lot of organizations. So, I mean, it's, it's hard. It's like, what would have been a plot point to get into the seventies? It's not controversial. Well, I think it's notable, right? Like they start with the war being over. And so that means that someone like Hank can be protesting funding of a veteran center, which feels relatively uncontroversial as opposed to a commentary on the war. Yes. And I think that having him quote Nixon is in some ways supposed to suggest a reunion between those who opposed the war and like the president who kept them there in a way that's like completely unrealistic. But I think they push for, as you're saying, like non-controversy or like even reunion when it doesn't exist. I still am not over the fact they won't even use and peek into the past the word feminism yeah, or women's movement or like consciousness raising or like all of these phrases that would have been used in the time. Well, if we look at the Melody books, which do come out after this, she's 1964. We're now situated circa 1975. In between those years, right, is like a tremendous amount of change. And it's sort of like with Melody and this character, we're just on bookends of it. We're not really seeing it. Yeah, that's true. We also missed Woodstock. We missed Woodstock. Like for in terms of all the tropes you would expect to hit for the 70s, like we haven't had a disco reference yet. She Um, loves disco, though, doesn't she? I think that's coming. Like, I don't think it's been, like, explicitly in this book, but it's coming. I think that's canon. I'm very excited. Don't tell us. I think I'm most looking forward to her going to a bicentennial event. So if that doesn't happen, just don't tell us. us. Don't tell us. I, like, my mom lived in a small town and, like, everyone had to dress up, like, 1776 during the bicentennial and you were given a fine, like, if you cut your hair or, like, you did something ahistorical. So it's, like, I want some unhinged bicentennial behavior in these books i want disco i'm vibing on it but it's just sort of like this is a very strange telling about the 1970s but i'm intrigued by it i want to learn more i want more of tracy in these books like what's tracy up to so we're not going to get a lesson per se we're going to get julie tells her story and i'm very excited about that i think julie's going to become an environmentalist at some point which i'm very much looking forward to yeah so like i'm eager for more Julie. I also just want to say, not necessarily as a plug, we did an entire series on Watergate in the summer of 2022 for kind of a retrospective. That would be on our Patreon feed, but we did do a lot around that. And we did a group watch of the film Dick. And that was a lot of fun. So like, if you haven't revisited that movie, like you definitely should. You know what? I... (sighs) I could talk about Watergate forever. We won't. I mean, I'm sad that like this is post Watergate, so we can't really like it's just like the trauma of Watergate and Julie, like the trickle down economics, quote Reagan, of Watergate into Julie's life. Like we'll see where it lands. I'm excited. There's more a lot more Julie where this came from. I mean, I can't wait. Um, so if you want to get in touch with us, if you have your own Julie hot takes, um, Allison, where can people reach us? I'm at Allison Harks on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow the show. Uh, We would love when you, you know, give us word of mouth. You tell other people and review the show, Dolls Lives Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Mary, where should people follow you? I mean, I'm happy to talk Watergate, 70s culture, aesthetics, basketball, 100%. If I could get somebody to do a fantasy league on women's college basketball this year, like I would be over the moon. 
let me know at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram. I'm on X or Twitter, but I basically just read on there and I don't like check my messages. So you should just like find me on Instagram. That's all I have to say. And, you know, you know, I guess we'll just keep this journey going rolling the first quarter to make basketball metaphor analogy. Um, and I can't wait to see where this is going. So thanks everyone. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.